Before we begin, I just wanted to uh, express my my heart in terms of uh, where I know you guys are at with school. I know it's uh, these are busy weeks, and uh, you have midterms, and you are probably pulling all-nighters if you're able in your old age. And uh, I know you guys are busy, 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 but... Uh, you guys are so committed, not just to our ministry and not just to our church, but to the Lord and what he is doing um, with each and every one of us here, but also uh, just, I know, your devotion to the Lord on an individual level. It's an encouragement to me. I was uh, in Westwood this past Tuesday meeting with some of you guys, and I'm just so, every time I come, I'm so encouraged by uh, where you guys are at and how the Lord's teaching you all and your humility and your teachability. Uh, as to uh, just the ups and downs of a quarter and what God brings you through and, and how he's proving himself faithful and teaching you. Um, so I, I'm encouraged, and I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you guys, even as we have a busy weekend. And uh, on the outside, I think we'll all be having a lot of fun and learning a lot, but I know that there's, there's tests and things on your mind. And so um, I see you, and I'm, I'm praying for you guys, okay? Uh, awesome. Well, tonight we are going to continue in our series on the topic of humility. Um, the, tonight, the title of the sermon is The ABCs of Humility. The ABCs of Humility. These are stories or fairy tales or books that you may have heard of. The tortoise and the hare, the emperor's new clothes, Casey at the bat, Yertle the turtle, all classic fairy tales and children's stories that have instilled in you and me from a young age a very simple lesson. Don't be cocky. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't presume upon your success. Uh, maybe the other way, be modest. It's the truth taken and conceptualized by HarperCollins and Hollywood alike in a way that is perhaps best read or thought of in the King James Version. Pride goeth before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. You can just imagine it on the last page of the Aesop's Fable book. In fact, this proverb, Proverbs 16, 18, has turned into one of society's proverbial truths. And ironically so, because in a self-esteem, self-defined, truthing, ambition-driven sort of culture, this truth-turned-truism has become so embedded in our culture, people hardly know that it's from the Bible anymore. And maybe you didn't even know that until we went over it last week. The prideful antagonist is a TV or a movie trope that's a worthy foil to the underdog hero. Uh, you know, the insufferable, overly confident, evil always, brute or... Queen, 
whether that's in Snow White or Karate Kid. It's been instilled in us from books and movies, fables and fiction. It's not good to be prideful. If you are proud, you will fall. Our culture tells us at least into the water or off the cartoon cliff. Last week, we looked at humility's greatest enemy, what we're talking about, pride. And we saw, perhaps more accurately than in the movies, from the very Word of God, the danger that pride brings to our hearts, this opposition to God, this pervasive obsession with putting ourselves where God ought to be, on the throne, in our hearts, and at the very center of life. And as pride pervades our hearts, how we begin to view and to treat and to speak of others in a negative way. And as we saw, the sum total of this kind of pride is not just a momentary splash into animated water, or it doesn't just cause you to lose the karate match. The way of the proud, when pride is full-fledged in the human heart, The way of the proud will face God on the day of judgment, the truth we saw in Isaiah. And for the Christian, the pride that remains in our hearts then is a hypocritical remnant of our sin. It's a territory in our hearts that is indeed worth fighting for because He is worthy of every ounce of our praise. And so in our pursuit of humility, we've seen we indeed must begin with battling our pride. And that battle is not just a prerequisite to our pursuit of humility. It must be an ongoing and a regular fight as we pursue humility. You see, in our self-esteem, self-advancement oriented culture, we must Every day, actively eliminate pride. We, we must identify where in our lives we are, as Charles Bridges says, contending for supremacy with God. Where we are lifting our hearts up against Him. Well, tonight what we'll look at is that humility is not just a scorched earth policy on the great enemy that is pride. You see, true Christian humility is not just eliminating the pride from our lives, although it does start with that and it continues with that. Humility is also cultivating a flourishing understanding and appreciation of God of the gospel, and of our relationship with others. And then living in light of that. True humility, you see, involves what the Bible calls putting off the old self and also putting on the new self. Let's look at Ephesians 4 to just look at this principle that as we pursue humility, we must not just eliminate pride, we must As these passages we're going to look at say, we must clothe ourselves with 
humility. Let's look at Ephesians 4 first for just the general principle of what it looks like to put off and put on. Ephesians 4 and in verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then turn to Colossians 3 and we see that the same idea but now applied specifically to our character and even more specifically to humility. Colossians 3 verse 5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator here there is not greek and jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave and free but christ is all and in all put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And Paul goes on to describe more of that godly character and what it does. This is all similar to the imagery that is used in 1 Peter 5.5 where Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And so as we continue our pursuit of true humility, we must put off the pride of the old self and we must put on, we must clothe ourselves with humility. And so tonight as we approach God's word and seek to do that and see what that means to put on the new self, to clothe ourselves with humility, let's pray because we need God's help in this regard. Father, we ask for much grace as we continue together tonight to look at what it means to pursue humility. Uh, Give us clarity from your word, we ask, and would your spirit work in our hearts uh, to grow us much in this area. In Christ's name, amen. Last week I gave a definition of humility, and I want to give it to you again, so it's at the forefront of our minds. And it will be our task tonight to explore and expound on this definition. Uh, True humility is the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing oneself in view of God, others, and the gospel. True humility is the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing ourselves, rightly assessing oneself in view of God, others, and the gospel. Tonight I want to define and defend not just this definition, but what 
true humility is, what we must put on, what we must clothe ourselves with. See, more important than committing my definition to memory is, uh, is important, essential, that you see from God's word what true humility is. And so let's look at God's word to build a true and accurate conception of humility. Let's look at the ABCs of humility, this biblical view that we must construct of humility so we can put it on. So first, let's look at the action, the action of true humility. Turn again to a passage that we've turned to several times. Turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. We need to first establish the sum and substance of what humility is by looking at what it does. It's to answer the question, what is the fundamental action of true humility? What does this virtue of humility do? How does it work? What are its inner workings? In Romans 12, verse 3 gives the clear, simple answer to those questions. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. At the core, humility is the act of assessing one's self rightly, accurately. You see, instead of giving in to the tendency to, as this verse says, think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, which you and I find ourselves so often doing, humility, true Christian humility is thinking, as this verse says, with sober judgment, sound judgment, Correct thinking, grounded, realistic thinking, accurate assessing of ourselves. And what is this right thinking? By whose standard is this right? Well, we need to think biblically about who we are. You see, when I ask you in conversation, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Uh, we just met. What would you say you are? What do you do? What do you think of first? What, what do you say usually? Depending on the context, you might say, oh, I'm a UCLA student, or I'm a part of GOC, or I'm an engineer, or don't, don't worry about my major, but I'm pre-med. Okay, so you're psychobio, I get it, cool. Uh, you may say, uh, don't worry about my major, I'm North Campus, and I would say amen and amen. You may instead identify as a dog lover, or an ice cream lover, or a dancer, or a gamer, or a musician. I'm not mad at those kinds of answers. Very normal, very 
natural things to identify yourself by. Uh, But as we consider humility, we must think about who we are fundamentally and fundamentally by what the Bible defines us as. Uh, Well, the Bible's understanding of who we are, very simply, is that we are created by God. And Genesis 1.27 tells us, made in the image of God. That we were made to know and to worship Him. And the Bible also tells us that we are sinners, both by fallen nature and also by the sinful choices we make to do what God tells us not to do or to neglect doing what God has commanded us indeed to do. Uh, We're in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 3, and we need to see who we are. We are not only created by God in His image, made to know and to worship Him, that we fall short of His glory. Romans 3, but we need to first look at verse 11. And this is a quote of a psalm, and Paul uses it for us to understand in this letter what it means to be a sinner. It says, as it is written, verse 10 actually, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we are created by God, made to know and worship Him, but we are all sinners. That is who we are. Yet by the grace of God, the story doesn't end there. We are, as we look at who we are, uh, we are saved by the grace of God. In that same passage, look at verse 20. Uh, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then the logic that we just read in verse uh, 23, and it talks more about the law, but look at verse 24. For we fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so we are created by God, made to know and worship Him. We fall short of that glory and we sin against a holy God And yet God in his grace gives us this gift of salvation in Christ. What this passage calls propitiation, payment for our sin. And because of that, Romans tells us the rest of the story. Flip over to verse 5, chapter 5. We are restored also into a right relationship with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what beautiful truth. We have access now to the 
holy of holies to God himself through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And flip over to Romans 8 and you see more and more blessing and benefit as we find about who we are and what Romans tells us. Look at Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, friends, we were made in the image of God, made to know and worship Him. But we were sinners, both by nature and by choice, falling short of the glory of God, and yet we are saved by the grace of God and restored into right relationship with Him and beneficiaries, recipients of grace upon grace upon grace, security upon security, and all in Christ. This is uh, by what the Bible tells us, uh, what the truth is. This is who we are. This is who we are. And so on a basic level, the action of true humility is to think of oneself in this way. Uh, to think rightly as to what the Bible says about who we are, sinful yet restored image bearers, being found in Christ. And, And so as we ponder the grace found in the gospel, this helps us certainly to not think too highly of ourselves, but it's also a reminder to think rightly of ourselves, of our value in bearing the image of God and our value found only in Christ. This is who we are, and this is how we ought to think of ourselves. Uh, not, just more, not just not highly, but rightly also. During World War II, there was an operation called Operation Grief. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, and it was a German military operation in which a brigade of German soldiers uh, comprised of men who supposedly had a knowledge of the English language and specifically the American dialect were trained to dress and act and speak like American soldiers in order to infiltrate the American forces at the Meuse River. 
these men were trained for a short six weeks for this operation. And as you could guess, due to a shortage of American uniforms and a shortage of distinctively American-looking armament and equipment, and probably because of obvious German accents, several key German imposters, infiltrators, were, were caught and faced a firing squad. But before these imposters faced the firing squad, they spread lies amongst the American ranks about how many other German imposters there were, and they grossly overestimated the numbers. And so while a failure from the standpoint of a military mission, Operation Grief had a lasting effect on the morale and trust within the American ranks because of the lies of these German imposters. There are imposters to true humility. There are mentalities and ideas and feelings, lies even spread by Satan and willingly believed by us. These are lies that breed in us pride and false humility and insecurity. Assumptions that we make when we think about humility and these ideas, these mentalities, these feelings are fakers. They're false versions. They're imposters. These imposters are sometimes schemes of our own pride. Sometimes these imposters are lies we are fed by our culture and its twisted understanding of humility. And sometimes I do believe these imposters are things that are genuine misunderstandings on our part about what humility is. But no matter the source, these imposters to humility are counterfeits of the most devastating kind to the true humility that God calls us to. And as we consider the action of true humility, that is to rightly assess ourselves, there is one imposter to true humility that is necessary to consider. And it's our assumption that to be humble is to simply think low of yourself. To be humble, perhaps, is even to hate one's self, or at least things about one's self. Humility in this regard, this imposter regard, is to be quiet and gloomy, to be down on yourself all the time. As if true humility is to say, I am nothing, I am a worm, and then acting the part. And in a world of outspoken and arrogant pride, it is so easy to think this, that to be humble is to be glum, always down on ourselves. Well, at its worst, this imposture to humility begins to feel sorry for itself. It's very inwardly focused on itself. It licks its own wounds. 
sin focuses only on its own needs and its own lack and its own wants and its own failures. It's very worst. It's self-hatred or self-neglect or self-punishment maybe. This imposter turns a blind eye to the person you were created to be. It turns a blind eye to all the blessings found in Christ. The continuing forgiveness and mercy and grace of the Savior found for all of us into eternity. You see, Christ is not enough for the quiet, gloomy, humility imposter. And the scary reality about this imposter is that perhaps this person is just as self-centered and just as self-focused as those who are loud and proud about everything that they do. Now certainly, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But we are also to think with sober judgment. We are to think with truth in our minds about who we are and to know and to believe and to find joy in the truth about who God made us to be and everything he's done for us in Christ. Abundant provision, abundant grace, humility embraces that and rejoices in these truths. As we've considered the fundamental action found in true humility, and that is thinking rightly about ourselves in this way, it might be helpful to point out that this is, as we've said, not thinking more highly of oneself, but also it's not thinking more lowly of oneself than is accurate. Humility simply may be thinking just rightly of oneself, perhaps less often of oneself, although rightly. Tim Keller simply calls humility self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. So Grace on Campus, would we be a ministry, would we be individuals who think of ourselves not more highly than we ought to think, and will we think of ourselves rightly as to the Bible says we are. This action of humility, this rightly thinking of ourselves, is not without basis. It's not this kind of thinking just on its own in a vacuum. So let's look at, secondly, the basis of humility, the basis for true humility. You see, as we seek to assess ourselves rightly, there must be a basis for our thinking. Uh, there must be uh, truths in Scripture, other things outside of us by which we can orient our thinking about ourselves. And uh, as I think about what these bases are, I think of, oh, I think of old lighthouses. Uh, these are time capsules. These old brick buildings built on the edge of the land to help ships not run aground. Some of these are built in the 1800s and have stood in service for over 100 years and then are replaced by uh, aluminum buildings with lights on them. But lighthouses 
do something that even your iPhone flashlight can't do. They help guide massive ships around dangerous rocks that ships would not run aground. Here, even in Romans 12, we have lighthouses. We have beacons of divine truth guiding us as we navigate how to pursue true humility. A basis or multiple bases on which to orient our thinking, our our correct assessment of ourselves. And Paul gives us uh, these three bases, this basis, you could say, that has three parts. First, Paul points to God himself as the basis for our humility. Uh, Look at what Paul says here, helps him and helps us to think rightly of ourselves. Look again at verse 3. For by the grace given to me. Given to me by who? By God. And then look at verse 1, the context of this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Uh, The basis for Paul even giving this instruction is God himself and the grace and the mercy that he gives. Uh, Paul, the great apostle, the one to whom God-given spiritual authority and Gospel responsibility had been given. Even Paul understands. Even Paul, he knows and he believes how kind and how good and how generous God himself has been. And as we seek to think of ourselves rightly, our basis needs to be a right view of God. And I think there's no better place than to turn to Psalm 50 to Look at who God is and how we must orient our thinking around who God is as we pursue humility. Look at Psalm 50, and you should look at the whole thing sometime by yourself, but we'll look at just a few verses. Look at Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What we see here is that God does not need us. God does not need our sacrifices. For Israel, that was bulls and goats, but for us, he does not even need us. And yet he is gracious to receive the very sacrifice that he sets out for us to give. That is who he is. Turn to Acts 17, and it's another picture of God's not needing us. This idea that God is 
independent, not dependent on us for anything. Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he, gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God does not need us. And in fact, Paul, as he talks to those in the Areopagus, he points out God does not need us, and yet also God gives us life and breath and everything we need. It makes me think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God does not need us. God is far above all that we are and all that we think and all that we know. And yet he is gracious to even consider us and set us just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings over his creation. What beautiful grace even just in that. And then if you think back and turn back to Romans in chapter 1, Paul shows us that God is gracious not just to create us and set us over His creation. God is gracious to reveal to us His righteousness. Paul says in 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Uh, the fact that God would have a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, uh, this ingenious plan far above anything you or I could come up with. And in His wisdom and in His graciousness, He revealed His own righteousness through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has given us his own power unto salvation. And so the basis for assessing ourselves rightly is that in front of us and graciously revealed to us is this great and awesome and holy God who is gracious to us in so many ways. The basis for assessing ourselves rightly isn't just God himself. We find another basis in what Paul calls the gospel. And in Romans 12, he calls it the grace of God. The grace of God. Look back at Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And throughout the book of Romans, God has shown, uh, Paul has shown us God's amazing grace. 
And so as Paul urges us in chapter 12 toward humility and how we think of ourselves, he speaks not on his own authority, but, that, but, but by that which God has given to him by his grace. You see, for Paul, it was the Damascus Road experience when he first saw the Lord uh, by that blinding light of heaven, still then a persecutor of the church, deserving the vengeance of a holy God. And instead, Paul, by the grace of God, was given forgiveness. He was given mercy by the blood of Christ. He was freely forgiven. And by grace, also then called to be an apostle, uh, one who was to bear witness to the grace of God, then to others, uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and to be God's instrument in establishing the church. Uh, that's what the grace of God looked like for Paul. But for me and for you, uh, we may not have that Damascus Road experience, but you and I, if you know Christ, you and I have experienced just as miraculously the grace of God in Christ. Uh, this is a grace that we don't often think of to our shame. If you are saved, think right now of the instance or the season or the circumstances or the people by which God showed you his saving grace for the very first time. And while it was that instance, or that circumstance, or those people, through and underneath and under all of that, it was the amazing grace of God in the gospel. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Sweet verses, again, that we know. But we don't pass our eyes over enough and rehearse these truths. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And not a result of works so that no one may boast. The fact that the gospel is completely of God's doing and giving and not of our own doing removes any boasting for ourselves. In the gospel, the wise of this world are confounded by the infinite wisdom of God in His grace. The strong are proven weak and unable and they are driven to find their strength in God. The rich of this world find their riches worthless and seek eternal riches in Christ and all because of His grace in the gospel. And so that's why humility is a fundamentally Christian posture. Humility is befitting of the very gospel that we are saved in. And the gospel eliminates any kind of boasting, Ephesians 2.9 says. But it leaves room for one kind of boasting. You need to see Jeremiah 9. Look at Jeremiah 9. 
And it's the only kind of boasting that the gospel leaves room for. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The only boasting allowed at the foot of the cross is boasting in knowing Christ. Knowing Christ our Savior. This is the amazing grace of God in the gospel. And so like Paul in Romans 12, the grace of God is a basis for our pursuit of humility. We're humbled at the foot of the cross. Because of what God and God alone has done for us in the gospel, we ought not to think highly of ourselves, but rightly of ourselves. As those who have not achieved our own salvation or our own status by those who have by grace been given much by God, we have further help, further clarity for our correct assessment. We have basis for our right thinking of ourselves in our thinking about God and now here in our thinking about the gospel. Finally, here in Romans 12, there is a third basis for our humility, for this right assessment of ourselves. Go back to Romans 12. Uh, We ought to think rightly of ourselves in view of God and in view of the gospel, but also here in view of others. In view of others. Look at verse 3. Again, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And Paul goes on to describe those gifts of grace in the church. With Paul's help here, we ought to recognize the beautiful design of God in the church. Each person, each member of the body of Christ is given a different measure of faith, a a different gift of Grace, such that, uh, though we do not all have the same function, the same role, the same gift, we are all still members of one body, the body of Christ. And so this variety of giftings and roles and abilities within the church, Paul is showing us here, ought not to be cause for competition or positioning or uh, envy or pride, but for humility, for worship, for gratitude, for how God has built His church, for how God has gifted me, and for how God has gifted each one of you. 
that is a basis for humility. And it's also a basis for action. Look at where we just read in verse 6. Having gifts that differ, let us use them, Paul says. This right assessment of ourselves is a humble recognition of God-given gifts and abilities in ourselves and in others. And it leads to grateful use of those gifts. That's how others are a basis for our humility if we think about others rightly and how God has gifted them. Now, I think there's a dangerous imposter to humility in this realm as we pursue humility. It's an imposter that paralyzes the church and breeds passivity and inaction amidst God's people. It's this. It's the assumption we so often have that to be humble is to deny any sort of spiritual gift or God-given natural ability. Uh, that to be humble is to say, no, I, I can't do anything. I don't have that ability. When maybe indeed you do. It's it maybe perhaps overcompensating for the times where you are proud and loud about your own abilities. We can, in this way, be self-deprecating to a fault, uh, insecure even about how God has gifted us, uh, not reflecting humble and honest, sober judgment about how God has given us gifts of grace. And when you do this, though, you are denying your God-given gifts and abilities, turning a blind eye to who God has made you and what He has given you. Uh, perhaps worse than even just denying your own gifts and abilities is to acknowledge that you indeed have those gifts and abilities and yet you think that humility is to simply not use those gifts and abilities. To think that serving is in some way automatically showing off. But what you're doing in that moment is selfishly hoarding the spiritual gift that God has given you by His Spirit that, by the way, 1 Corinthians is clear, is for the benefit of others. And all the while thinking that humility is to deny the reality of that ability or keep that ability under wraps for some reason. Well, whatever way it looks for you, true humility needs to instead rightly recognize God's gifting and the benefit that that gifting brings. And you must actually exercise that gift and benefit others as God has designed. In Paul's words, having gifts, let us use them. Using your gifts is inherently a humble thing to do. Now, I think this may be a little bit of a sermon for another time, but we're going to go for it. I, I'm sure... That in this realm, there are times when this imposter that we're talking about, this denying of our gifts and abilities, takes on a different appearance. It puts on a different costume. Maybe not in how we think this way about our own gifts and abilities, but how we think about other people's gifts and abilities. And I think sometimes it's reflected in the 
culture or the atmosphere we create in how we flatter and pump up others. We create sort of an echo chamber of false humility where it would be almost impossible to truly exercise your gifts or serve in any kind of significant way without being embarrassed or clowned or even ashamed that you even tried to serve or that God actually did make you good at something. And so I think sometimes we can be such a flattering and falsely encouraging kind of people, even if just for fun, such that it discourages and flusters people who are truly stepping out in humble faith to serve the Lord. And so let us, in humility, think rightly about our gifts and about the gifts that other people have. Use those gifts in humility and genuinely encourage and find joy in seeing other people also exercise their gifts. As we consider the gifts of grace that are given to us by God, would there be a worshipful gratitude to the giver of those gifts of grace? A humble recognition of both what God has given you and a humble and joyful recognition of how God has gifted others also. All of us with varying gifts and measures of grace ought to be drawn toward humble usefulness in the kingdom and then encouraging the same in others. The prideful competition that we talked about last week, the silly comparison game that we find ourselves in with other people is so contrary to God's design for his people. Because all over the New Testament, we see other responsibilities additionally that we have for one another that are exercised in humility to love one another, to care for one another, to exercise patience with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another and encourage one another. And so would we, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves and then actually live that reality out in the church, using our gifts, encouraging others to use their gifts, and serving and loving one another in all of the ways that God has designed for us. These three things, God himself, the gospel, and how God has designed others in the church, these three things are our basis for the pursuit of humility. The truth upon which we believe and before which we correctly assess ourselves. True humility is not a one-dimensional children's storybook kind of lowliness, but the right assessment of one created in the image of God, fallen yet restored, and all in relationship to God, the gospel, and others. There's one more observation we need to make here in Romans 12 about true humility, and it's the C in the ABCs. It's the consistency of true humility. You see, our pursuit of humility is not just a one-time assessment. It's not a one-and-done sort of evaluation. It's not what many of you hope sort of an MCAT or CPA, pass the test once and you're done kind of thing. A pursuit of true humility is a consistent and regular assessment. Here in Romans 12, Paul shows us 
It's a way of life. Humble and right assessment of ourselves, uh, the one that we see, the kind that we see in verse 3, is rooted in Paul's instruction in verses 1 and 2. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, in these very familiar verses, uh, Paul, in response to everything that he has said in chapters 1 through 11, is saying your response as a sinner saved by grace, restored in in right relationship to God, and given blessing upon blessing in Christ, and power in the Spirit, in response, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Live, he says, in a way that worships God. God's people, for hundreds of years, had offered God animal sacrifices. And God had laid out in his law the prescriptions for sacrifice as worship, and sacrifice as atonement for sin, and sacrifice for giving thanks. Lambs and bulls and goats and birds whose death and whose blood was worshipped to God. Well, here in Romans 12, Paul says, now in Christ, who is the perfect once-for-all sacrifice by whose blood all of mankind's sins are atoned for, now you worship by bringing a sacrifice not of your flocks and herds, but the living sacrifice of your own life. And the way you do that, the way you live a life of worship, is by not being conformed to the world's ways, but by being transformed from a follower of the world's ways into someone whose mind is, verse 2, renewed. Someone whose mind is attuned to the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Someone whose mind and heart is humbly submitted to the will of God. And so as we consider this right assessment of ourselves in verse 3, It is the core of verse 2, that mind renewal. It is the foundation of this Godward way of thinking, this being transformed in this life of worship to God in the way we live. For the Christian, the pursuit of humility is a life of humility, a consistent and constant recalling to mind the basis for our humility, remembering God and his mercy and grace, remembering the life-changing truth of the gospel, remembering the beauty of God's design in all of this, not just in ourselves, but in others as well. And so humility is a lifestyle, a characteristic disposition of the heart, a consistent posture of your heart in a way that isn't self-sustained but sustained by the power of the Spirit's work in us. And so day by day, moment by moment, we are to be rightly assessing ourselves, but then also repenting and responding and listening and speaking and praying and believing and loving in a way that puts that right assessment 
on display in how you live. You see, humility is not just in your brain. It's not just how you think. But it is to be how we think and act and believe about ourselves. It's a consistent posture of our heart that spills out into our very lives. As we close, there's one final imposter to humility we must consider. And it relates to this consistent and faithful pursuit of humility as a way of life. The final imposter to humility is the assumption we make that to pursue humility in and of itself is to be truly humble. To be humble is to simply say, I'm humble, or I'm trying really hard to be humble, or pray for me as I grow in humility. That to scratch the surface is to reach it in some way. This is very aptly described in an old book called The Screwtape Letters. It's the perspective of Uncle Screwtape, the master deceiver and the tempter written to his budding nephew, Tempter. And he says this, your patient, the person that his nephew is working on to tempt, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on through as many stages as you please. Grace on campus, if we are not careful, the pursuit of humility will become a treadmill for our own pride. And so even in our pursuit of humility, we must see the need for faithful dependence upon the Lord. The need here is not to live humbly by pulling up our own bootstraps and and actively seeking to be humble by our own strength. But we must, in all of us, be dependent on the Spirit's help. True humility, the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing oneself in view of God, others, and the gospel. Next week, we'll draw out more of what this kind of true humility looks like, what it does, how it lives, and how we can pursue it faithfully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We're so grateful for the many ways that you work in our ministry. And we anticipate as we've studied this virtue of humility that you will grow us in this. And so we submit our wills to you and know that this growth cannot happen